My name's Rich, and I will be doing today's scripture reading. Um, today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. If you have the red uh, Bible, it's on page 786. Um, concerning adultery, you have heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Said thanks be to God there. After hearing the reading. That's going to be the last time you laugh today, by the way. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Thank you, Rich, for that reading. A choir, thank you so much for that song. I said earlier to our leadership teams that uh, in the service this afternoon for Trent, um, this scripture we're going to be reading is from Psalm 23, which is the song that the choir just sang over us. So it's a nice gift for later today that they just gave us. Yeah, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 5, which is in uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We actually preached through the Sermon on the Mount um, a year or so ago, and this passage came up, uh, lumped together with uh, the next passage on divorce and adultery as well. And so I don't want to repeat everything that I said then, but I do want to uh, do something that is not normal for me, which I'm going to give away the ending right away, because we've got a lot of stuff we need to talk about together. Uh, We're in the middle of a set of teachings on sin. And last week we talked about pride. This week we're going to talk about lust. It's really important that we talked about pride last week because the stuff that I'm going to get to share today has, at least for me, really instigated my own ego and pride where I thought like, oh, this is a tough teaching. I'm going to back up a little bit from it. That's going to be for somebody else. And some of you are going to feel that way across this teaching where you you will feel yourself wanting to step away from Jesus's words and say this is for somebody else or for some other time. Um, but this is for all of us. So let's just jump right into what Jesus is doing in this passage. It's in Matthew 5. Again, the reference is uh, starting at verse 27. This is in the middle of this section where Jesus is handing them back their story, their tradition. And he'll say something like, you've heard it said in days of old, but I say. It's really important to remember that this is not a, like doing away with what was said in days of old. But it is a fulfilling of or an expanding of. It's moving with the grain of tradition, with the grain of Torah, into sort of its fullness. And so you'll hear Jesus talk about anger or oaths, what kind of promises we make to one another. And in this section, you hear Jesus talk about this uh, lovely word we call lust. I grew up with so many sermons on lust when I was a teenager And it was always about the same thing. It was always about porn and masturbation. And then that was it. And then we would all go and have some pizza. And then we would feel really guilty because that didn't make any sense. What I heard in those messages, whether the preacher intended it or not, was we are all made with these desires. And those desires will lead you to hell if you don't get them under control. Uh, And I thought, well, I'm like 15 years old. All I am is like hormones and like jitters. And I really don't want to go to hell, whatever that means. And so there was just a lot of angst 
around this idea of lust. Partly because, well, it was a narrowly defined kind of lust, like the lust that uh, maybe a, a man would have toward a woman or a, a boy toward a girl. And uh, that felt really narrow. And also, Jesus' uh, consequences feel way overboard. Like, what if the hospitality team went around and passed out, like, grapefruit spoons and said, if anyone is feeling a bit tempted by this, these work really well for, like, the ocular nerves. You know what I mean? Like, that's insane. But to really, like, think about what Jesus is saying, it feels a little bit insane. Top left. This is from Exodus 20 and also the second time the Ten Commandments are given in the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not commit adultery. It's like a really clear uh, command. In the Hebrew language, it's just two words. It's low, no, and then adultery given in the imperative. Don't commit adultery. Just two words. Really, really simple. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. There's this other passage in the Ten Commandments. It's the last commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants or donkey or ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor, which begs the question, I didn't know that the Bible was cool with people being part of your like livestock and asset sheet. But that's just the way things were at that time. Uh, I mean, that's the way things were like yesterday. Uh, it wasn't until 1982 that the Supreme Court struck down what was a pretty common uh, law, which was that property and assets in a marriage were held only by the man, and the male was the only one who could dispense of those properties, including the marriage itself. That was struck down in 1982. Like in the last 50 years, it was legal for the head of a household, let's name that language, to physically abuse the female of that household like it happened under his domain he's the master and ruler of that home this is just yesterday so i know that we look at this passage and think thou shalt not cover it thy neighbor's wife feels like really uh sort of regressed but it's still who we are so jesus says i tell you that anyone who looks with a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart i just want to show you how these verses tagged together because what jesus is doing in his you've heard it said but i say he's taking parts of the ten commandments sort of the core uh parts of torah and he's tying them together turns out this is much less about that sort of like feeling you get when you see somebody who's very attractive and all of a sudden your your heart maybe like turns up a few degrees and it is much more about thinking about the other particularly women as property or as objects that's that's the whole thing, okay? So adultery and adultery, obviously those two are pretty related in both the Greek and the Hebrew. But here's the thing. The word for lust, epithumos, which means uh, like a sort of heat or an anger or a hatred that passes through. That's the word for lust. Not exactly desire, like what we see in the Song of Songs. But this other thing. And the word for lust, it's actually the same word as the word for covet. It's turning a person into an object. Later on in the New Testament, we'll hear these commandments summed back up again. And then Paul, the writer of the book of Romans, will give us sort of the antithesis of this bad disposition toward. And says, 
The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says a similar thing too. That a healthy self-understanding, sort of understanding of dignity and worth, as it comes from God, should lead to a movement of that dignity and worth out toward another. That seems so simple. But here's the problem. Uh, In the early part of the Bible, we get this story of creation. And, And in that story, we get something that we would call like the world as God intends it to be, which is called tov or good or very good. There's this section, though, where things start to fall apart. We call that the fall. It's like with the serpent and the, and the fruit and the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there are all of these curses that come off of that. And one of the curses, one of the consequences, is that the relationship of equality between people breaks. And so no longer are the man and the woman, these two primal humans, sort of shoulder to shoulder as helpmates. But all of the sudden, the woman is placed underneath in this sort of dominant and oppressive relationship to the man. It says in the passage, uh, to the woman, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now what happens is we take the part there that we call the curse and we forget that it's part of the curse and we name it as just part of the way things are and always will be. And that's actually the way that they should be because that's how the world appears to us. And so you get really tricky theologies about male dominance and male hierarchy and only certain types of bodies can be leaders and only certain types of bodies can speak and only one person. Our church software still makes us choose a head of household for every family. And every time Cynthia and I sit down, we think, who's it going to be? Right? It doesn't just default to like the man of the real, right? This is just kind of where we are. Here's the thing about lust understood as the desire to possess and to consume another as an object and not as a person. That's the danger, by the way. Jesus knows that in a male dominated culture, a man's lust can result in a woman's undoing. Just turn on the news and you will see today even that there are plenty of spaces in our world, in our city, in some of our homes where women do not have permission to say no without the threat of violence. So how much more 2,000 years ago would this have been true? In a world predicated on male power, men's lust can quite literally kill a woman. Which is why you get passages like this out of James 4. You lust after something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. It's right there in the word. The heat and the anger and the fury that arise when desire is not met. It's a really, really dangerous thing. What happens, and I've been reading a lot of books this week by women 
In fact, uh, we preached about some of these things in Advent two years ago, and we uh, sent out a reading list uh, by mostly women authors that sort of carried some of these ideas a little bit deeper, and I'll share that again. But one of the folks I've been reading is by Rebecca Solent. It's a book called The Mother of All Questions. She also wrote a set of essays called Men Explain Things to Me. Um, but she has this section here. She says, uh, love is a constant negotiation, a constant conversation. To love someone is to lay yourself open to rejection and abandonment. Love is something you can earn but not extort. It's an arena in which you are not in control because someone else also has rights and decisions. It is a collaborative process. Making love is at its best a process in which those negotiations become joy and play. The Bible would say they become tove and very tove, good. So much sexual violence is a refusal of that vulnerability. So many of the instructions about masculinity, they inculcate a lack of skills and willingness to negotiate in good faith. Inability and entitlement deteriorate into a rage to control, to turn a conversation into a monologue of commands, to turn the collaboration of making love into the imposition of assault and the assertion of control. And then this line, in all of its brutality, rape is hate and fury taking love's place between bodies. It's a vision of the male body as a weapon and the female body, at least in heterosexual rape, as the enemy. What is it like to weaponize your own body is the question she asks. So yes, this is a hard word. And for some of us in this room and myself across this last couple of weeks, I've wanted to distance myself from the teaching. But this teaching is for you. Here's why this teaching is for you. If you are listening to those around you, then you will know that the effects of like that Genesis 3 world, the world that is unraveled, is deep trauma and pain for many most of our sisters. Not just our sisters, but the ones who've been named as less powerful in our world, in our culture and cultures around the world. It just exists as a reality. It's a quote by Norman Mailer on Marilyn Monroe. And he says about her that she's a mirror of the pleasure of those who stare at her. And we know what happened to Marilyn. The tragedies visited on her own life and her own, her own body. And her story is not unique. There's a reason that she's become something of like a sex symbol or a sex object, not person. She's like a metaphor of meaning. Something we can possess, something we can own, consume, discard when we're done. Her very person becomes the mirror of others' pleasure. It's not just her story, though. It's the story of of lots of folks. In fact, Jesus... Right, we sort of take the language of the New Testament and we place it in 2020 and we say, this stuff, it's not quite as advanced as we are these days. Look, Paul talks about women submitting to their husbands. That's not... In Jesus' day, this was the prevailing wisdom of the rabbinical order. This was a prayer of thanksgiving that would get offered by teachers of the law. Dear God, thank you so much for not making me a woman. 
That was the space that women were supposed to inhabit, a space of silence and subservience. And this is the prayer given to God at that time. Jesus steps into this world, into this sort of cultural pain and trauma, and speaks with, addresses, moves straight into the place of pain and partners. It happens over and over and over again, not just in the teaching out of Matthew. If you've got a Bible, you could also turn to the book of John. John 8. This is the story. Do you all remember this story of all of the religious leaders who are trying to trap Jesus? Because what women are actually for is just trapping men in sin. And so that's the thing that the religious leaders do with this passage at the time in this story. They find a woman. It says that they take this woman and they drag her in front of Jesus. And they say to Jesus, we caught this woman not in adultery, not like in an adulterous state of being, but in the act of adultery, which means that they were probably somewhere they shouldn't be anyway. And they take her from that space and they carry her out in front. The question might even be, is she clothed at this time? What kind of exposure and vulnerability is she being subjected to? And these religious leaders say, hey, Jesus, we caught this woman. And to test him, they ask, you know what the law says. The law of Moses says that we're supposed to, to stone such women. So what do you say? We know the passage goes, right? Jesus leans down, doesn't say anything, or, or the text doesn't say what happens in this passage, but writes something in the, the dirt, and then stands up and addresses them again and says, like, whichever of you has no sin inside of you, then you may throw the first stone. The word for sin there is this word, uh, harmartia, which means like to miss the mark. So for those of you who have really great aim with your life, here's a rock going ahead. Whoever is without sin, you can cast the first stone. Right now, Jesus is playing the good male Jewish teacher at the time, just addressing other male teachers while there's a woman between them with no voice and no agency, sort of waiting for a verdict. So they leave one by one, starting with the oldest. And then Jesus kneels down and plays in the dirt again, stands up and looks around, and it's just Jesus and the woman and says, like, where are your accusers? There's like, she says, they're not here. He speaks to her, looks her in the eye, and addresses her. Is there anybody left to condemn you? He asks. No, there are not. He says, then I don't condemn you either. Now go and don't sin. It's this desire that turns murderous. We can feel it in the culture, in the stories. These women as pawns in some other person's game. And Jesus says, we're not going to play that game anymore. It's subtle, and yet it's pretty profound. Anybody feel pride moving in yet? Distance moving in? I'm going to keep asking you to stay with it. Because these are our stories. There are people in this room, a lot of people in this room, who are hurting because of the effects of desire run rampant, dehumanizing tendencies. Margaret Atwood, prolific writer, probably known best for The Handmaid's Tale, she says, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. 
Yeah, John 8 seems to indicate that. This is just an abiding reality. I've asked women in my own life who feel safe to share what it's like to be a woman in the world. And not a one has said a different story than to be out in the world is to be afraid. To walk through my neighborhood is to be hyper-vigilant for someone who might take advantage. Ask people who ride public transit, who ride the metro every day, what it's like to be vulnerable. This pain is everywhere. So Rebecca Solent in this book, she says, this widespread existence of gendered violence and sexual violence seems or serves to curtail or limit the freedom and confidence of those who must navigate a world where threats become a background element to their lives, a footnote on every page, a cloud in every sky. These are not crimes of passion, as they have been called, or of desire, but of the fury to control and to reinforce or reimpose the power structures. It's to make of Genesis 3, Genesis 1. It's to say the curse is actually the created order. And the world of oppression and hierarchy is how things not only are but should be. It's the get back in your place language. It's the quiet down, we don't want to hear that story anymore language. It's the this is making me uncomfortable language. And I am uncomfortable in the world as it is. Because the violence that we do under the name of power and control and the desire to own and possess it doesn't just affect those who are traumatized. It traumatizes all of us. Here's the thing. I'm not talking about someone else out there. I grew up in this. Most of us grew up in some twisted version of masculinity that said to be vulnerable, to have emotions, to be tender is itself a weakness. And that weakness was going to get you beat up in middle school. It's not going to get you a girlfriend, especially not the hot girlfriend. It's just not the way that boys act if they want to be men. And so the first cut is to the tenderness that we all carry. It's a numbing. It's the same kind of desensitization that you have to go through if you're going to go into war. And you might have to kill somebody. You get used to the violence as necessary. So she quotes in her book, uh, The Poet Bell Hooks, African-American female poet. She says, the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women. Instead, and when I say patriarchy, I mean Genesis 3. I mean the world and the curse. I don't mean that being male is itself evil, but the world is telling us what it means to be in power or not in power. We call that something like the patriarchy, or we could just call it sin. Because Paul says in the New Testament that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Like, that's a huge statement. It's big now. It was huge 2,000 years ago. Instead, patriarchy demands that all males, that they engage in acts of psychic self-humiliation that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count 
on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that would assault his self-esteem. Uh, boys don't cry. That might be the way that we heard it. Or locker room talk. That may be the way that we heard it. The first cut is internal. A cutting us off from relationship. Right? That's what sin does. Is It says we don't belong to each other. And Jesus is here to undo the effects or wages of sin that we call death. And when we are dealing with death, then we're going to have to talk about the real stuff. And this is the real stuff. This is how Paul talks about it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our culture, in the West, this kind of violence, it is overt, but it is sometimes quite subtle. In other parts of the world, it is just straight up the way things are. It's a death to the self. It's a death to relationality and connection. It's the death to voices that we have not heard. It's a silencing that imposes a kind of control. And it is a limiting of all of us. So, at some point in our culture, folks started talking and started telling their stories. And this falls underneath what we know as the Me Too movement. This sort of cultural truth-telling where people show up. By the way, um, Baptists have always been really obsessed with bearing witness, with telling our story. It is the way that we enact our faith. People have asked before, like, what is your set of, uh, of like, orthodoxy or beliefs? And I always say, like, Baptists are a people of witness or of martyrdom. And we bear witness to the way that God works in our lives. And there's something about this movement that reminds me of the power of story. So this quote by Ursula K. Le Guin says, We are volcanoes, speaking for women here. When we women offer our experiences as our truth or as, as human truth, all the maps change. There are new mountains. So I don't speak to you today as much simply as myself, but in carrying as many voices as I can with me into this pulpit and into this congregation. Trying to carry your stories you've shared and the ones that I've heard, the ones I've enacted, the objectifying that my own eyes have wrought on the world. I grew up in these systems. I learned how to self-mutilate my tenderness as well. I'm trying to grow back into the person God has made me through repentance, through practice, through confession. And through the blessing of other people witnessing to the pain and possibility when voices no longer remain silent. In the midst of the Me Too movement, of course, pride is ushered in to guard the wound. And so there's a counter movement that happened that said, not all men, like hashtag not all men. Um, And of course, like this is what it reminds me of. It's a shield that our egos hide behind. To say like that, yes, like people have done these things, but I haven't done these things. Which isn't really the point. Which is just a doubling over of the pain. Then there was, of course, a response to this. And I think this is where there is deep meaning. 
But I think this is actually the Jesus move. This other sort of slogan popped up that said, yes, all women. And it's envisioned as this kind of umbrella or canopy that holds all of this tenderness together. And here's what I continue to learn. It's true that there is a universal trauma that exists in our world. So when I said earlier, this teaching is for you. It doesn't exactly just have to be a sort of conviction in confession. It also is a practice of empathy for you just simply to understand the texture of the pain of those around you. Diana Butler Bass, who writes a lot of, of Christian nonfiction, she talked about her own story of abuse by her uncle when she was 14. And she said uh, that gratitude and forgiveness get ushered in really quickly in these stories to say, like, listen, I know you're in pain, but if you would be able just to really quickly forgive and then get to a place of thankfulness, then you will feel much better. And she said, those things come, but they come after the truth and after confession. They come after the voices that say, this hurts like this right here. Here's the other reason why telling this story in public is so important. This is the move that Jesus makes. It's not first one of fixing it. First, it's one of feeling it. It's the move of solidarity. It's the language of Emmanuel or God with us. It's the, I see where it hurts and I'm going to move toward it. It's the language of the cross. And if the cross is anything, it is the world's insatiable lust and anger visited on one body. Even the posture of the thing feels itself violating because it is. The stabbing of the spear, the craving that leads to anger, that leads to murder, the abandonment and the shame. And when Jesus is splayed out, Because of the lust turned rabid of the world, he can say to the world, I know. I feel it. This is the move. This is the one we are invited into. Not to make excuses, not to minimize the pain, but to feel it. To hold it up and say that God can be here with this at the same time. That we don't have to tell the same old stories over and over again. And we don't have to make excuses for the way the world is broken. But we can hold out the promise that the world doesn't have to stay this way. So last story. It's from John. John's Gospel, chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. So it's early in Jesus' ministry, in the way John tells it. And there in this area where there are Samaritans, which is already like a bad enough thing, Samaritans, but then there's a woman Samaritan at this well drawing water, which is just like a doubly bad thing if you're a Jewish male. And Jesus is there sitting, and the woman comes up to draw water, and he engages her. Again, in conversation, not a thing that you do. He says to her, give me a drink. And the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Footnote says, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans, which we could also add to that footnote. Males do not share things in common with females. We do not share things in common with enemies. It is the language of our separation turned into a norm. 
Jesus does not live by those rules, but in fact makes up the rules. Jesus answered, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That sounds fantastic, she says. Where can I get some of this water? Oh, you don't have a bucket, dude. And the well is really deep. But what is this water like? He says, like this water, you will not be thirsty again. It turns out, because he asked her, he says, like, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. In fact, you've had five. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. And when we hear that, when I've heard that, it sounded to me and to the preachers I've heard over the years as, look at this promiscuous woman who's had so many suitors. This woman has no choice. She's been passed around at least five or six times. And the man that she's with will not marry her, which means she is destitute but owned at the same time. She lives in her body in the place of oppression. And so, yes, when she comes to the well, it's not just the well for water. It is the well for everything. And she keeps dipping her bucket in and pulling up nothing but the bitter cup. The same thing that Jesus drinks. And Jesus offers her something else. Y'all, if we're going to love the world, then we're going to love the world. What that means is that when the world is hurting, when our friends, our neighbors, our sisters and brothers are hurting, we have to listen. Jesus is big enough to walk with us through this because Jesus shows us the way. And it's just the fact that even my own very sharing this feels like a peeling of myself open, both to judgment and my pride moving in to guard me. Because it is such the way things are, but it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus sets the world upside down. And we are still coming to grips with what that might mean. And until we believe that God has made us one, that there is no longer this person or that person or male or female or young or old or rich or poor, we will continue to do violence to that which we don't understand or which we cannot possess and control. And the move of the cross is to say that I will be vulnerable to the world's pain. I will take it in and not return it. And in taking it in and not returning it, I will undo it and redeem it at the source. And so Jesus gives his body and lays it down in the grave. And then on Sunday, somehow raised to life. The first two who show up at the garden are women to hear the news of what God has done. Now I don't want to miss it, and I know you don't want to miss it either. In a world that is ruled by lust and the craving to control and possess, can we be the kind of people who see one another, not in their weakness or in what they offer, but in their full humanity? To say brother or sister, and to not feel ourselves reduced, but to see ourselves lifted up, no longer separate, but together. There's a line in Joy to the World that says that the work of Christ will travel as far as the curse is found. And this is a spot where the curse is found. And you are Christ's ambassadors in the world to undo the effects of the curse. So may God make you strong for the task. No longer contributing to the wounding of this world, but it's healing. Would you pray with me?
God is a hard word, but it's a clear one. We've all had a drink from the bitter cup of the curses and brokenness and the unraveling of those who are vulnerable for children and for women, for LGBT folks who don't have a voice. And I confess, God, that I want to name the cross as triumph, but first you show it to us as defeat. And so I offer myself, and for these friends here with me, a surrender to the vulnerability necessary, to the dying necessary, to get to true life. And we trade in this day all the false drinks for living water that we do not produce from our own springs because we confess that we are broken vessels leaping out from all sides. But you are on offer. You are on offer. And you love us without controlling us, but giving us freedom to love you back. And so we will love this world without the promise of control as well. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.